This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, Natasha Leone's Poker Face edition. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2023. On today's show, Ryan Johnson and Natasha Leone, he of Knives Out, she of Russian Doll, have teamed up to create Poker Face, a serial crime dramedy, kind of in the Columbo mode. We'll discuss it's on Peacock. And then our march to the Oscars continues. We discuss All Quiet on the Western Front, which has been showered with nominations, nine in all, including Best Picture. It's a German language version of the classic novel detailing the brutalities of World War One. And finally, oh, capitalism, you've done it again. We discuss a Grub Street article about the latest stroke of capitalist genius for selling authenticity to yuppies known as the shoppy shop. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner. She's the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello, Steve. Hello. And uh, of course, Dana Stevens sitting across from me is the uh, film critic for Slate. Though, Dana, I notice you're kind of two-timing a little bit on the cinema. You're writing about the television. <laughs> That's true. We'll talk about that this week. But this is the fallow season for movies is why. So, you know, I'm sort of yeah. stretching a little bit to write about some interesting and sometimes movie-related television projects. Yeah, well, lucky us, right? The Poker Face piece was great. Let's start there. Ryan Johnson has scored two Huge hits with Knives Out and its sequel, Glass Onion. Natasha Lyonne, meanwhile, made really kind of an extraordinary comeback with the Netflix TV show Russian Doll a few years ago. The two have now teamed up for Poker Face on Peacock. Uh, It's kind of like an anti-premium streaming series in a way. It's uh, not a bingeable set of 10 episodes that adds up to a single novelistic story arc, but it's really more of an old-fashioned case-of-the-week TV show with a Columbo or, you know, even Murder, She Wrote vibe. Leon plays Charlie Kale, a casino employee with an astonishing gift. She can tell when people are lying, which she is now going to use, now that she's on the lam, to solve murders week by week. This is a scene from episode three where she catches someone telling a little white lie about paprika. Let's listen. Paprika? Paprika? Yeah, it's just this uh, stupid little thing that's been bugging me, because mostly when people lie, it's for some dumb who cares reason, which I'm sure this is. So last night, in the kitchen, you said you didn't know where the paprika was, but you did know, so why were you lying about the paprika? It was hectic. There was a lot going on, and I want to bet out to find it. To find it? <laughs> Look, Charlie, I like you. And if Taffy really is who you say he is, then, well, he must be very dangerous. For your own safety, I think your best move is to hit the road. Get a fresh start. Mm, something tells me she may not hit the road and get a fresh start in that episode. Dana, I loved your piece about this show. You seem to have connected with it. It's kind of great to have, I mean, Natasha Leone in anything, but to have her in her own distinctive, really wonderful way, channeling Peter Falk from the Columbo heyday. Pretty freaking great. What'd you make of it? Yeah. I mean, this show just completely hit the spot for me. I'm not going to make any big argument for it as the the future of television or, you know, anything that's kind of even reinventing the wheel as far as this crime of the week procedural goes. But we just don't have any shows like this right now. And I mean, as I think I've said at this point, ad nauseum on this show, I just sometimes like get really over the, the episodic, deep mythology kind of TV that gives you a cliffhanger every single week. It's, there's something really satisfying about individual episodes being tied up in a bundle and you can watch them in any order which you really can with this show once you've seen the pilot that you know sets out the premise that you just discussed you you really could just mix them up because it's just the same adventure happening over and over again that makes it not the best show for binging because it is the same formula over and over again but it does that in a very clever and sweet way and just you know as with any of these shows hangs on the personality of Natasha Leone if you enjoy her i mean russian doll the first season of it was one of my favorite TV shows of the past, I don't know, five, eight years. I absolutely loved that 
six episodes or whatever it was of TV. This isn't that. It's obviously a different structure, but it similarly relies on just the charm, the charisma, the rasping voice of of Natasha Lyonne. So if you like her and you like a a mystery of the week retro style Columbo story, I think you'll dig this show. Yeah, and Julia, we hear that clip and like immediately my tail starts wagging. Like I just love the sound of Natasha Lyonne's voice, especially recently that that like experience weather, you know, rasp. It's like so human and easy to connect with. What do you make of this one? I mean, let me mount an argument that this is revolutionizing the future of TV. I'm not sure I believe it, but let me try. Why has it taken this long in the TV fancy streaming era for really creative people who are capable of our best work to just take aim at the procedural. The procedural is such a fun format. It's so satisfying. It's television's ultimate comfort food. I say this as someone who I think has literally watched every single episode ever aired of both Law and Order and Law and Order SVU. Like, <laughs> and we don't spend a ton of time talking about shows like that because the pleasures of them are not, it's not Andor. It's not The Last of Us. It's not trying to make a huge point about humankind. It's not trying to make you think differently about the world. It's not really even trying to make art. It's trying to use the tools of art to please you and entertain you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And somehow it's so refreshing to have these, not just talented, but like, I don't know, kind of chic artists, right? Like kind of cool artists. They're both at these career peaks, right? Like Natasha Lyonne has made just this incredible stuff. Ryan Johnson has shown that he can like tangle with the Star Wars verse, come out more successful than he was before, and then turn his attention to like making adults love murder mysteries again. Like what a gift for these people to decide that at this moment of peak talent when what they could say is, we really want to recreate All Quiet on the Western Front with Natasha as Paul. Like, they could do that if they wanted, but they don't. They just want to have fun. Mm-hmm. It's so pleasant. It's so pleasant. And I think there's, like, plenty to dissect tonally in the show and why the tone is so pleasant right now and how we should feel about that. But I'm I'm ready for the procedural wave. Like, uh, let's start casting. I want all my favorite actors to pair up with all my favorite director creators and make more procedurals. Like, yes, this sounds great. This is delightful. Right. And there was something about, I mean, Julia, I know you've said this many times that this the sonnet gives rise to creativity for being a shackle. Right? It just girdles the form so tightly as if you obey its fundamental rules. And there's something to be said for something that's miniaturized and yet delivers on the familiar rhythm something new and interesting. And I think this show does all of the above. Plus, it has Natasha Lyonne and that voice and that uh, charisma, that quiet, smoky charisma that's just hers alone at this point. So it's I think it's very successfully delivered. Um, I think there's something very briefly to be said about, like, let's not lose the virtues of the streaming thing, the, the kind of peak TV, golden age TV, streaming TV. Um, think of this briefly just as a business story, right? Standalone TV was totally necessary because, because you had to catch an episode when it was aired. You couldn't count on everyone seeing every episode. You couldn't really follow multi-episode arcs. It wouldn't have lur- worked in the pre-streaming era. And secondly, syndication, right, was where tons and tons and tons of money was made on the back end of these shows if they achieved a certain, you know, critical mass popularity-wise. And they were just, you could pop them out, you could catch one and then never watch it again or catch a couple and it didn't matter what order you were seeing them in. Um, I feel like I'm going to the hardware store for oranges, as they say, in a weird way. Like, I feel Peacock, being an NBC product, kind of wants to have familiarity, old shoe familiarity to it, to draw in like a new, maybe a new demographic of uh, of watchers at the same time it wants the prestige of prestige TV. And some there were moments where I was like, hey, I don't, you know, is this all going to fit together? I liked it, but I'm not sure I'm going to return to it over and over and over again. I don't know. I guess they're just betting on the fact, Peacock is just betting on the fact that, as Julia was saying, the kind of um, prestige right now and the and the hipness of, of the combination of Leon and Johnson will draw people in. I, yeah. don't, I don't personally watch TV uh, in order to sustain some sort of 
you know, narrative underneath the episodes. In other words, it didn't it didn't feel like a a fault in these episodes that it didn't supply that and didn't make me want to watch them less. In fact, I think this is very well suited to the weekly drop because like I was saying, it's not a show you really want to binge. I did binge it in order to review it. And while I liked many of the episodes, actually number five is my favorite. And I want to put put that out there. If you if you aren't liking the show, try number five just on its own. It happens to co-star as one of its um, its Love Boat guest of the week cameos, uh, a Law and Order veteran, S. Patha Merkerson, and also has Judith Light. It's a really great episode. Um I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that business question, but I feel like the show has been very warmly, critically mm-hmm. received, and I have a feeling audiences will mainly respond to it right. as well. I, I just want to refine that a tiny bit, Julia. I only meant that I'm out of certain viewing habits and not sure how quickly I'm going to reacclimate myself to them. Law and Order was, hey, it just came back from a restaurant, 11 p.m. rolls around or midnight, and I've just watched The Daily Show, and boom, there's Law and Order. It's just old reliable. Like, I just kind of don't want to go to bed. I'll watch it, whatever. Yeah, that made sense. It didn't have to be a great show. It had to be familiar, comforting, you know, had those rhythms or whatever. And I'm not so sure that I would seek out in a streaming context this particular, I don't feel the itch and I won't go in search of the scratch. I mean, I don't know. As someone who definitely feels the itch on a regular basis, I don't know how to relate to that. <laughs> you do you. But I will say, I, you know, to me, one of the things that has a lot to recommend it about this show and that's so fun and feels like such a gift is that it's not just that you have this cast of extraordinary actors showing up and really delivering in these little bit roles that get discarded episode by episode, but they're really well written and crafted and drawn. Mm. Like as someone who has seen, you know, 67,000 episodes of Law and Order, when you go and meet the bartender or the babysitter or the landlord or the garbage truck guy or, you know, all of the different characters you meet as the mystery gets unraveled, um, you know, they're fine. They're sort of disposable performances. Sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're freakishly bad. They're, you know, it's kind of funny to track them. They're, they're, they're really, you know, because you're producing 20, 20 to 24 a year in the classic broadcast mode, you take an approach to, to the scripts that, that, you know, befits that economic structure, right? Whereas here, in part because of the kind of caliber of the cast and the fact that they're like having a lark doing this fun procedural and in part because of the setup of the show where she is a personality susser who can tell when people are lying Mm. and because of the Columbo structure where you know who did it and it's just a question of how is it going to get figured out or revealed all of that requires like a little bit of a closer character study of, of all the people involved in every drama. And so, you know, the, all of these performances are give you a lot to watch. Like it isn't really just, you know, the kind of endless stream of like dead body, mad landlord. Oh God, it was the aunt. There was a will, dead body, <laughs> mad, mad lawyer. Oh God, there was a corporate struggle. It was the CEO, you know, like just, it. it's not... The textures of it are really rewarding. And, you know, that is, I wonder if this show will endure because the, or if, you know, if they'll even keep doing it just because the particulars of the way in which Natasha Leone is charming. I love her wardrobe. She's dressed kind of like a Muppet at Burning Man. Um, Most of the time, like a lower key Burning Man, I guess she's not wearing like steampunk goggles, but she just looks like a desert freak in a great way. I also don't know, since she's on the lam, why she keeps putting on new outfits. I find that confusing. But um, the the pleasures of it feel very of the moment. Like, lot going on in the world, lot to think about. Let's just put all of our love and care and craft on something a little insular and fun. 
I mean, I will just say that I personally hope it gets a second season. I suspect it will at least get a second season. Mm -hmm. And I also think that actors are going to be clawing to the top of the pile to appear on this. Because you're right, Julia. It's not, you know, the reason we laugh at guest spots on Law & Order is because it's sort of like, look, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing, you know, whatever, random delinquent number three. Whereas here, every guest star gets a real chance to, you know, to do something to sink their teeth into an interesting role. And again, Merkerson in episode five. I love her. Um, So, yeah, please. Please bring us another season. It's Poker Face. It's on Peacock. Uh, check it out. Uh, we we all really liked it. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, uh, I'm sure you have some there. What uh, what do you got? Stephen, our first item of business this week is just to tell you that we're still accepting applications for the role of our production assistant. We're hiring a new one, if you didn't hear our announcement last week. This person will help us come up with ideas for the show. They join our planning call every week, and they put together a research packet ahead of our recording so we know something about the topics we're talking about. This is a really important role to us, so we want to find the right person. It's been filled by some really talented people in the past who have gone on to very interesting jobs in journalism and elsewhere. This job requires a time commitment of about 10 to 12 hours a week. The starting wage is $20 an hour or possibly more based on your experience. And we are based in New York City, so we would love to hire someone who we can occasionally see in person in the studio, but remote candidates will also be considered. If you want to apply to be our production assistant, please send us a cover letter explaining why you want the job. And please also include two topics that you'd like to hear us discuss on a future episode. You can send this cover letter to culturegabfestassistant at gmail.com. Once again, that's culturegabfestassistant at gmail.com. We'll make sure to post that email address on our show page as well. And our second item of business, as always, is just to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we're going to talk about sleepovers. There have been a couple of buzzy articles lately arguing about sleepovers for kids and their value, one in the Washington Post and one in the Atlantic, one pro and one con. The Washington Post one talks about the possible risks of sleepovers and things that could go wrong, might be dangerous about them, while the Atlantic piece basically defends them and argues that they're a crucial part of growing up. Uh, We talked about this a bit uh, on our planning call this week and decided that we had enough to say about it. There was enough juice there to have our own little argument or at least discussion about sleepovers. So that will be our Slate Plus segment for this week. So if you're a Slate Plus member, stick around for that conversation at the end of today's show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, the German director Edward Berger has taken on a monumental task as anyone approaching this classic novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, would have to. He The challenge, I think, in doing this material again is to depict the First World War, a half-forgotten war, a war without all of the greatest generation mythologies of defeating fascism and therefore evil, um, in all of its gruesome, ignoble majesty, while also making us care. It's very remote from our lived experience. To do so, and keying off of the original novel— uh, Berger's movie follows Paul Baumer, a 17-year-old boy filled with jingoistic zeal uh, and all the courage and naivete, therefore, of youth from his enlistment through the utter pointless brutality of the trenches as it adds up to absolutely nothing. Okay, well, we face this challenge occasionally when we do a foreign language movie. We we don't have an obvious clip to use. This movie is almost entirely in German. Uh, so we don't have any dialogue, but there are so many interesting sonic moments in this movie. This is from a haunting early scene where we see women repairing the uniforms of dead soldiers so they can be recycled for new recruits who themselves are just products of recycling. So you're going to hear the sewing machines in this clip and also the abrasive score that recurs throughout the film. Let's let's have a listen. Julia, let me let me do something slightly different. It's a movie, but I'll start with you because we started with Dana last time. Um, you know, I, I'm, have I framed this wrong? I mean, it, World War One is the most important thing that never happened to us, right? It's outside of living memory, and yet it is arguably the greatest folly in human history. It killed 17 million people for really nothing. Um, and yet, law of unintended consequences, it kind of gave us modern life. It gave us 
the 20th century as, as we know it, and therefore the world in which we live. Uh, Berger had a real challenge here. How do you think he he rose to it? This movie is really hard to not watch. It, I, it It's weird. I mean, I think part of why we're doing this movie this week, we should note, is that it it came in with nine Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Best International Picture, all of the technical awards, including score for that amazing sound, uh, World War One at the club. Um, and I can, you know, so we were like, great, all right, let's dig in. Basically, all of Hollywood was sort of like, huh, wow, okay, everyone's been talking about banshees, everyone's been talking about everything everywhere all at once, the, the other two top nomination getters. And then this you know, German language Netflix film full of like bleak trench shit when we just had a bleak trench shit movie, you know, a couple of years ago with um, with 1917. I don't know. I was not looking forward to it. And it was a grueling watch, but it's it's a weirdly beautiful and watchable movie. Like I was I, I sort of understood upon watching it why it has a nomination in every single technical category. Um, the the way in which often wordlessly, often just as you're watching soldiers tumble through incredibly bleak, purposeless tasks, um, it creates little moments of drama and suspense and drive and, and it carries your attention through pretty briskly for a movie that's two hours and 27 minutes long. I, I was really impressed by this movie's technical skill. So in terms of pure craft, I thought it was great. In terms of its purpose in revisiting it now, I was curious to think through what it would mean, what it might mean in modern Germany at this moment to revisit this story. Mm. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I mean, we there is a incredibly stupid war going on right now in Europe. Um, and of course, this movie must have been conceived and made well before Putin invaded Ukraine. But I don't know. I I, I I also had never seen either of the other adaptations, nor have I read the book. So I also didn't know how the story ended, which I won't divulge here. Um, but I had the perhaps amusing um, experience of being surprised by this age old text. Uh, but I'm so curious to hear what you guys thought of it. Yeah, Dana, as Julia says, uh, nominated to the skies every major category. Do you think deservedly? What'd you make of it? I mean, I agree with Julia that on the craft level, it really is extraordinary. It made me wish that I had seen it in a theater because it really is a big screen spectacle that does a lot of starkly beautiful, you know, ironically beautiful things with the um, with the equipment of war. You know, there's a recurring image of uh, I guess it's just a, is a bomb dropping from a plane, right? But there's this sort of um, almost comet-like light in the sky that the mm -hmm. soldiers look up and witness from the trenches. And it's all shot in this very beautiful way that yet doesn't seem aestheticized. I don't yeah. know if you guys saw 1917, the Sam Mendes film from 2019, but that was my main critique of 1917. It is also a kind of miracle of craft. And I think I said this in my review of 1917, but as beautifully done as it was on a technical level, it felt a little bit like a video game in mm -hmm. a way that felt yeah. sort of unethical, you know, it felt that felt somehow wrong. And this movie doesn't have that fault. It manages to, you know, create this sort of beautiful spectacle of war without it being beautified and with it being fully, you know, cognizant of the ugliness of war. In fact, obsessed with showing us that ugliness over and over again. Uh, but there were some things about it that deviate from the novel and also from the 1930, you know, best picture winning um, early sound adaptation of the novel that I don't think really belonged there. And they were a pretty major part of the movie. Uh and that is the um, the cutting back to the to the diplomats and the generals and the guys in boardrooms that are trying to negotiate the armistice as we see the young men fighting out in the in the trenches. And I just I'm not sure that that although that all seemed exquisitely well researched and as my viewing companion observed, it was like the the weft and weave of the fabrics of everyone's uniforms seemed like it had just been researched to the nines. And, you know, it was from a, again, point of view of production design and, you know, just historical detail was extraordinary, but I didn't think that added dramatically very much to the yeah. movie at all. For one thing, those characters were not real characters, like guy with a bushy mustache, you know, shaking his fist in a boardroom about war. We didn't know who they were. 
and they were just represented an ideology, essentially the ideology of, you know, war for war's sake and kind of the inability to negotiate peace. And I don't know, I guess I just felt that that contrast was really obvious. And we know we get it. You know, we get that there is a vast distance between the guys that are drinking fine wines in a train car somewhere arguing about the war and the boys in the trenches. And I just kind of wanted mm-hmm. to stay with the boys in the trenches. Right. I, I, I concur completely. I thought that worked least well in the movie. What I thought worked it's a bravura piece of cinema making uh, and it deserves its nomination. Julia, I had exactly the same response before I pressed play. I thought not really sure other than the nominations, why I would be interested in this. And within 30 seconds I was riveted and riveted pretty much to the end. Um, I thought what worked absolutely best within all, I mean, other than the just sheer movie making um, uh, virtuosity of it was the camaraderie of this, small cohort of, I think they're classmates, um, who are serving together uh, at the center of which is Paul, but then uh, he develops a friendship with someone who wasn't, who's a little older, and is in fact uh, working class and illiterate named Cat. Uh, His nickname is Cat. I thought that performance was wonderful. I thought their friendship was wonderful. It was the most meaningful part of the movie in some sense, and their, their twinned fate is what I cared about most deeply. Um, one thing I would say is that, and this is a point it turns out Jamel Bowie made really well, and I, I I had read this when I was in like seventh grade, and there was one thing I remembered about the whole book, which was that central to it, and central to its point, is how at those moments where he takes leave from the front and goes home, he finds himself completely alienated from his own family, his own teachers, that that, that it, it wasn't the discrepancy between a leadership class, which is not depicted in the novel. None of that is from the original book. Um, but the discrepancy between the person who actually experiences the trenches and um, the entire rest of German society, which is still talking in the same pieties that got everyone into the mess in the first place. And it just... And that is a central experience of modernity. It creates, you could argue, modern art and modern literature. The total obliterating of piety and a certain kind of received highfalutin language in Victorian diction by experience, specifically the experience of the trenches. And that's missing from this. You never see him return to civilian life. And um, and I kept thinking an anti-war movie, I mean, this is considered to be the greatest anti-war text of all time, or certainly one of them. But an anti-war movie needs a war. And our sense of what an anti-war movie is got completely remade by the Vietnam War, because Vietnam remade our sense of what war is. War is different in some ways now than it was then. And so the central force of this initial document doesn't really have much of a place in here. You could certainly interpret it in light of the Ukrainian war. It should certainly expand your sympathies for the people who, I'm sure, fighting the war, those people are sick of the pieties behind it on both sides. But I just, I, that was too abstract too, given the brutality of, of the film. I don't know. I, 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 I wasn't sure always why I was watching it other than the power of the filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, I think my critique of this movie, if I had to have one overarching one, would be why this movie now, you know, and what what does it have to say or bring to the war genre that's new? I mean, as you say, the novel, the novel this is based on by Eric Marie Remarque was, I mean, not only an extremely successful novel at the time, right, but mm-hmm. it was a really important novel in literary history because it was in a way one of the first war memoirs. I mean, it's a fictionalized version, but yeah. he was a veteran of World War One, and, uh, and the whole genre of, you know, writing about one's actual experience in the war, which is almost always going to be an anti-war text, right? Because yes. who is coming back with a story that's inspirational from that experience, right? Um, was begun by this. So I guess if you're German, there's an answer to that question that I can't really grasp as as an American viewer, which is that this is a German language text about a German war, right, from the, the century in which there were these two, you know, vastly destructive wars that began because of choices that country's leadership made. And so this must, and it's the first German language adaptation of that novel. So this has to land very differently there. From some of the research we did, it seems like not every critic there has has loved the movie and, uh, and that they, some of them on ideological grounds have have objected to, you know, the way it presents the war. Um, so maybe we're not the right people to answer that question. I think that that would be 
if this were to win a bunch of Oscars, I think that would be my one qualm about it. Not that it's not a deserving film, not that it's not made with, you know, care and, and love and, and a lot of attention to um, to detail and to, to good storytelling. But what does this movie have to bring to us now that we haven't already seen, you know, for decades and decades in anti-war films? Yeah, Dana, the question of why now is so interesting to me. And I, I felt myself wanting to understand the German politics. I was struck by the argument that you know, instead of zooming out to see how alienated he is from home and what what even matters, what the political machinations are, we spend the time with these poignant bureaucrats. Um, you know, I, I wonder if it has something to do with the futility, like the actual the actual inability to accomplish anything that that is striking. Like, I feel like the Vietnam narrative is like, we're all doing all this stuff and it's so stupid and pointless, but you you... You know, you can denude the jungle and use, you know, like the the action of Vietnam movies is not um, itself nihilistic, right? Like they do stuff over there. It's just all for no reason. Whereas the actual futility of trench warfare and the combat itself being so purposeless, like, is that what's resonating with us now? Help, help me out. Why are, Why are we looking back at this war right now? Let me hazard an answer, Julia, as best I can, which is that, you know, unintentionally, this movie gives us some kind of an explanation for the, to put it mildly, equivocal response of the Germans to the Ukrainian war. Their reluctance to step in to supply uh, arms or financial support to the degree the other NATO, major NATO allies are, its relative reticence in condemning Putin. I think it has to do with way more than just a dependency on the fossil fuels of Russia. I think this movie helps explain why after two brutal world wars and sort of century-defining world wars, both lost by Germany, there's a streak of anti-piety and anti-charisma that runs through, especially the reunited Germany, um, that conduces to a degree of pacifism. Um, I think you feel when you go there, the entire country is devoted in some sense uh, to reckoning and historical memory and not repeating the mistakes of the past. And so... I, of course, it couldn't have been in response to the Ukrainian war, but it's out of the same zeitgeist that gives us this, um, I think, in some ways, quite frustrating reluctance in the face of the Ukrainian cl- conflict to take clear sides uh, and and repeat pieties that I regard to be true, that we're fighting global, essentially, on our behalf, Zelensky and the Ukrainians are fighting global illiberalism um, in ways that are utterly heroic. But it is so, this movie, if nothing else, is a reminder that it is so fucking easy for me to sit here and say that. That at the actual level of boots on the ground, exactly these experiences or their equivalents are happening every single day. And I don't have to experience that terror. And so to the extent that one remakes a movie like this, Maybe it should be remade every 10 years. It's a salutary reminder. Some other often young and increasingly in the modern world, socially and financially disenfranchised person acts as our surrogate. Yeah, maybe every generation needs this movie again, right? I mean, and it's worthy of noting in that context that the book was banned by the Nazis, Eric Maria Remarque's novel. So, yeah, yeah, so reading it now in in Germany, which I gather all students do, you know, as many students Mm. do here in the U.S., is a way of of reclaiming a history that was lost. Mm, Okay, the movie is All Quiet on the Western Front. It's on Netflix. It's very easy to see and I think really worth seeking out. Okay, let's move on. All right. Well, the uh, author Emily Sundberg has written a piece for Grub Street that really caught our eye. It's about a phenomenon dubbed shoppy shops. And uh, let me quote someone that she quotes because it captures it really well. We need a new term for, quote, Internet-based small businesses that still use global supply infrastructure. As Sundberg says, this is a friend of her speaking, a culture writer who also tells Emily Sundberg, we know these minimalist-ish generic aesthetics are not connected to any true local origin, but we see them as indicative of some kind of authenticity. My current thought is that they don't feel local to a place, but instead they feel local to the 
internet, which is, after all, where we all live. And someone else in the course of the piece dubs these shoppy shops. Julia, what would you make of uh, both the piece and the phenomenon it's describing? Oh, it's so satisfying when a piece of culture reporting puts its finger on something you've observed in the world and um, haven't even quite noticed yourself noticing. It's one of my favorite types of reporting, and this piece is a real coup of that, uh, of sort of noting that more and more at the little coffee shop or the plant store or the, you know, place that you do still go to in a bricks and mortar sense, the same sets of things show up, particular soaps, particular tinned fish, particular attractively designed, but available everywhere, but designed as though they aren't available everywhere, bottles of olive oil. Um, And what the piece reveals is that there is this kind of internet back end for people who want to put beautiful little dry goods in their stores. The piece notes that a lot of people use the word provisions um, so that essentially they can go on a big online database and click up on a wholesaler's version of Amazon, the things that they can put in their mom and pop shops to keep you from feeling like you just buy things at Amazon. Um, And it's so... I'm not sure that that reveal is actually shocking. Like, you know, I I don't know how we think the purveyors of little shops found the cute things in their stores before. Did they all go actually like forage them in the bushes of local craftsmen? Maybe, but you know, like wholesaling has always been a business. Um, But I think it's such a smart piece about the aesthetics of consumption and what we want to feel when we're buying something and how, you know, capitalism is always a step step ahead of us in figuring out how to offer us consumer experiences that, that are the ones we want to have at any given moment. What did you guys make of this piece? Do you, you live in in the land of the shoppy shops. Many of the shoppy shops are described are, are Brooklyn shoppy shops. Did this hatch a ping of recognition for you guys? I think it did less for me for the very dorky reason that I do almost all my food shopping at the food co-op, which Steve just recently became a member of, too. And after I put in that, you know, whatever it is, three hours of work every six weeks, I'm damn well going to shop there and get some value from it. So I don't think I wander into the places that have these kind of uh, small washed, as the piece says, you know, these 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 items that are made to look as if they come from small businesses when they're actually part of some mm-hmm. big supply chain. I mean, the packaging that she describes, I, rec- I recognize perfectly. And uh, it's a really lively piece to read for that reason, just the way she describes, you know, the look of these of these objects. You know, you certainly see them everywhere. And, you know, the sudden wave for tinned fish that swept the nation in the last couple I don't know, years or so, she kind of puts her finger on the um, the trendiness of those kinds of things, you know, those items that a desire is sort of created artificially for them on the internet, which I do completely recognize, even if I'm probably not wandering into the shops mm. that sell them. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh... So a couple different things. First of all, just chapeau, right? Like the capitalism's ability to satisfy what feel like deep needs, but in fact are themselves only cravings produced by capitalism is just endlessly innovative. And one of the, you know, sides of the street that it's been working for at least the last 20, 30 years is authenticity. Um, As someone who moved to a very small community filled with small producers, um, I think there is a genuine version of this. And I don't think we should go so Warhol and Pomo that we think everything is always branding, therefore plus ça change. I hate that argument. I just don't think it's real. Um, I think some things produced at a more handcrafted level are in some obvious way better. I mean, as someone who personally knows people who started incredibly popular, successful businesses at a tiny, at a micro scale, right? Like the Suarez Brewery up where I live, like they have decided not to grow. They can't make what they make at scale. They can get by and do well, but not get rich at the level that they're at currently. And they, as of now at least, you know, refuse to go to the next level. And so I think, Julia, I guess I would throw it back and just say, listen, 
I have no problem. Certain things probably are produced so much more efficiently at scale and with no appreciable loss of quality. You know, to the extent that there's any justice in the this way of doing things, it's the radically lowered cost of goods and therefore their accessibility to a much, there is an economic democracy behind production at scale in a way. So, you know, that's a freedom I think we should revel in and take advantage of where appropriate. But then don't fake, like, don't fake it. Like, don't play me like a sucker because then I will backlash against it. And secondly, don't tell me this lie that in some instances there's no difference between, you know, Budweiser and, like, the microbrewery, you know, the farm microbrewery in Vermont that blah, 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 like, fill in the blank. I don't know. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, 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 I should not be quite so cynical about it in in sniffing a bit at the reveal that there is a like place where shop owners can go to find what goods are available wholesale like there have been some centralized places for that but the other you're you're right that the other thing this piece highlights and that's part of what makes it such an interesting sticky good piece of journalism is that there's a couple of interesting trends captured in it is sort of pretty big businesses pretending to be small businesses in that through their aesthetics, right? And sort of um, trying to grow, but retain the feeling of like the direct to consumer relationship um, and the aesthetics of like, oh, I just happened to find this beautiful little company that makes these sweet little tin fish with the pretty picture on the mm-hmm. front. Um the other trend that this piece touches on, and again, it's just like a really dense morsel that you should go read, is the idea that a lot of us are now getting pushed products on Instagram and other social platforms. And there's a certain kind of vertigo of encountering those direct-to-consumer brands without the stamp of approval of a local seller or curator or somebody you trust saying things actually good. Like, I feel like I have this all the time. I'll see like a swimsuit or a skirt or whatever and just be like, is this real? Like, is this a real, is this a real company that makes real stuff that I might really want? Or is this like a dumb Instagram charade where the shirt's going to be made out of cardboard or the, the, the whole thing is just a scam to like get me to pay money for a brand I have no relationship or trust in? I mean, I guess there's something to be said for just the existence of brick and mortar stores continuing, right? It kind of goes to the argument we're always having about theatrical screenings of movies versus watching them digitally. We would all be sad if movie theaters didn't exist anymore, even if we don't go to them as much as we used to. And it's the same thing with stores. I'd rather walk into a small washed store and buy some cute cliched products that I can, as you say, Julia, at least hold and kind of experience and assume that somebody has has uh, filtered in some way than, you know, order a dress off Instagram, as I have stupidly done before, and then have it arrive as this flimsy thing that's more of a see-through shirt (laughs) that you're Mm -hmm. never going to actually don. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, maybe this is good news, right? Like, wouldn't you rather have a dozen shoppy shops in your neighborhood than a dozen, like, ATM machines, which was the prior highest and best use discovered by capitalism of, like, Brooklyn real estate, right? Like, so what if they all sell one particular brand of internet olive oil. Like, I don't know. That's kind of cute. That seems like more fun to walk past than the ATM. Well, wait a second, um, though. And, and wait, 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 just let me just, just yeah, let yeah. me finish. Like, I, I guess if like what if what the if machine of venture capitalism has discovered is that people want to go to stores near them to buy things like that's good. Like, I'm happy for that. That feels like progress in the like never mind stores be dead you'll buy it all on amazon the food will come in the tube from the sky like it seems like uh i don't know humanity prevailing in some fashion okay so you're laying out three choices the amazon the giant tube in the sky atms or shoppy shops those are not the choices the choices are uh, you know, rents that aren't out of control. So actual mom and pop operations can open up in neighborhoods and the money doesn't flow to a bunch of private equity dickheads. It's actually going to the people who used their highly specific creative energies and daring do as actual entrepreneurs, not fake balance sheet entrepreneurs, um, looking for a quick buck to make something that might actually turn into a lasting local institution, right? Like, 
I think people move to New York City because of more for like like things that are part of the deep fabric of a community, not some shoppy shop that's a a pop up designed to make some you know you know the latest iteration of the financial you know jerk rich anyway. Well, when you put it that well, way, I, think, but, I start but, to I start to Steve's winning me over. I'm thinking of Blank Street Coffee, which this article doesn't mention, <sighs> but which is this scourge that's popped up terrible. all around New York. It's like awful a, coffee. A fake small business. I haven't had it. I've not it's walked into awful one. But coffee, right? That's the but freaking that's a, that's problem. the example of a VC yeah. startup that is really kind of I don't know, just homogenizing neighborhoods. And fine, people don't right, know the but, difference. But, it's go enjoy but, it. But the venture capitalists in this story don't own the shops. The venture capitalists own. Some of the brands available in the shops and the back end that the shopkeepers can use to put cute provisions next to the coffee counter in uh-huh. their shops. Yeah, spoiler alert, the next thing they're going to do is buy these freaking things, the, the shoppy shops sure, themselves. but it's just, it's a little bit more complicated than that. All right, this is one of those ones we'll throw to you guys. Just email us what you think about Shoppy Shops. Uh, and also, who's right, me or Julia? Um, Welcome to the Shoppy Shop is the article. It's in Grub Street, and it's by Emily Sundberg. Let's move on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What do you, uh, what do you have this week? Uh, I feel like my endorsements are increasingly coming from my thespian child who <laughs> consumes so much interesting culture and is always sending me to interesting things now. Uh, and this week, I am inspired by her to refer everyone to an hour-long TV documentary called Kiss Me Petruchio from 1981. It is the story of—it's the backstage documentary about Meryl Streep and Raul Julia doing Taming of the Shrew in Shakespeare in the Park in 1981. So, mm. you know, there was just somebody following them around as they were getting their costumes fit and learning their lines and getting the show together. I th- believe you can also watch a filmed version of their version of Taming of the Shrew, but this is more the making of. It's just an hour long, and it's just so much fun to watch young Meryl Streep and young Raul Julia, you know, direct to camera talking about their interpretation of this play. They talk about the feminist problems with the play, because, of course, Taming of the Shrew is all about, you know, essentially how... Petruchio has to abuse his wife to get her to obey, and Meryl Streep has some very interesting stuff to say about that. But mainly, I mean, if you're just a theater nerd and you want to see things like close-ups on the costume makers sewing the flowers onto the dress, I mean, it's just, it's such a juicy theater nerd watch. So it's called Kiss Me, Petruchio. It is all over the place. I believe that she found it on Amazon. It might be on Netflix as well. But I think if you Google it, you'll have no trouble finding it. Kiss Me, Petruchio from 1981. That sounds amazing. Oh, man. Uh, All right, Julia, what do you have? Okay, well, I know we just talked about The Last of Us a couple weeks ago. I had not yet seen the third episode. And as if, if you're following on Twitter or following the TV cultureverse at all, you will have heard that the third episode of the Last of Us is an absolute stunner of a love story. It it sort of departs from our main characters and depicts the world of two men played by Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett and how they navigate this post-apocalyptic landscape and eventually intersect with with our main characters. And it's just an incredibly beautiful love story that's incredibly well acted and made and made me feel a hundred percent on board the rest of this show and wherever it's going to take us, even if the rest of it is literally just like pop-up zombies for seven more episodes. Like I have to watch the rest of the show to see what it does. It, it just, if you, if you have not joined this journey, you've got to go do it. And my favorite tweet about this that went viral on Sunday night after it aired was from a tweeter who goes by Zach Silberberg, who wrote, The Last of Us writers were like, hey, Joel needs a car. What if we write the most touching and heartbreaking hour of television in the world? Which is basically the plot of the episode. So, um, yeah, if you were not convinced by last week's conversation to get on board The Last of Us train and you were alarmed by the zombie talk, at least watch the first three episodes because this third episode is 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 a must-see. Oh, man. Yeah, no, no, I missed that episode of our show due to covid so i haven't seen last of us yet so now i'm i'm all in uh thanks for that julia um all right so i i couldn't let the death of tom verlaine go unremarked um to the extent verlaine had a unfortunate fate as a musician it was only that he came up next to the talking heads his band television came up 
right next to. He was peer band to Talking Heads, Ramones, Blondie, um, you know, just all of whom went on to much, much bigger success than Verlaine's band television. But, you know, I would say the critical consensus is not only every bit is good, but, you know, I mean, you know, Marquee Moon is is the perfect rock and roll record. It's one of the best rock albums ever made. Verlaine just died, I think, about the age of 73. And his uh, music was so hard to class in a way because it was, obviously it had this punk aura to it. Um, it's clearly they were a CBGB's band in some ways all the way. But at the same time, his and and his Richard Lloyd, the other guitarist, these beautiful, almost Bach-like guitar uh, duets basically harmonized or counterpointed sometimes one, sometimes the other guitar lines uh, interspersed in the songs were so they were just intricate, really haunting, um, you know, very musical for a, for a punk band Just rest in peace, Tom Verlaine. I mean, really created one of the great, great bands of all time. Uh, the album's Adventure and Marquee Moon are both absolute stone-cold masterpieces. And then super quickly, a discovery. Skeeter Davis, anybody? Uh, pop country icon, really, or, you know, sort of, yeah, I mean, sort of pop music country icon from, I'm going to say, 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe. I mean, 50s, 60s, probably. Um, love Skeeter Davis, it turns out. Sort of half forgotten, maybe too poppy for country, too country for pop. Uh, and she made one cut one song with her sister, at least one song with her sisters uh, under the name The Davis Sisters. I forgot more than you'll ever know about him. Than you'll ever know about him. such a great song. Oh my God, check it out. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us if we love it at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Today we talk about the sleepover panic of 2023, <laughs> which I didn't even know was happening until we did the prep for this segment. But um, apparently on TikTok, the beginning of every sentence in 2023, on TikTok, parents are freaked out about sleepovers and all the different ways in which they can damage your children and they use the hashtag... No sleepovers to pledge their allegiance to non-sleepoverdom because what if the family has guns or uses alcohol or glamorizes alcohol or lets you stay up too late or can you can you hear my dripping contempt for this stupid fucking scaremongering trend? <laughs> um, and then uh, the Atlantic weighed in. You know, the Washington Post, to be fair, was not actually scaremongering. They were reporting on the fact that scaremongering seems to be happening, both scaremongering and performative parenting seem to be happening on social media, which breaking news. And then the Atlantic chimed in to be like, sleepovers, they're good for you, which seemed sensible. Um, I think perhaps it is more useful if we spend our plus segment just talking about how we feel about sleepovers rather than indulging the idiotic fearmongerers, but would anyone like to give them more quarter than I have in this contemptuous introduction? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just would, would love to point out that when we discussed whether to do this topic or not, I felt disinclined for the very reason you state, which was just sort of like, why are we hopping on the latest manufactured uh, outrage bandwagon? But I have to say, having read both of these two, I mean, I, I think that I am also bringing something of my bubble of parenting privilege to that, because there are definitely questions that some of these parents interviewed in the piece have about the places their kids might be sleeping over that I would probably not have. Like, are there guns there? I just seriously doubt that among this sort of 
you know, nerdy New York families that my kid is likely to be spending time with, there's a danger of there being an unsecured gun in the household, which is not something everybody can say about where they live and where they're sending their kids. And, you know, I think that I would have enough sense to not send her to a household where I had no idea if there was a parent present or, you know, if there was a drug addict in the house or something like that. Those are obviously legitimate concerns. But the idea that the act of having a sleepover and, you know, whatever social dynamics might happen at that sleepover that might be humiliating or embarrassing or tedious or troublesome is a reason to protect your kid from them. Oh, of course, COVID was another cutout I was going to make. Like, obviously, if you are in the midst of a COVID wave or a place where people are not masking and you're worried about that, keep your kid home by all means. But that, if it starts to bleed into you know, I don't let my kid go to sleepovers because they might be bullied or, you know, they might experience some negative emotion. I guess a part of me, my Gen X self just sort of wants to say, you know what, isn't that part of what sleepovers are? <laughs> and isn't that trauma that you experience, you know, which also happens, of course, in schools and any other place your kids go? Isn't that sort of part of the uh, the trauma of growing up, the way that you tear the tissue in your muscles at the gym so that your your muscles get stronger. And I'm sure we can all have stories and maybe we can share some of them of either us or our children having a bad experience at a sleepover. But that's not an argument against them in my book. Um, all hail the sleepover. I mean, in the Atlantic piece, there was something that had never occurred to me and I was very interested to see, which is the she refers to the great heyday of the sleepover from the 1960s to the 1980s. I mean, who knew that it possibly had a beginning and an end? They seem so eternal, but of course they do. They're like the teenager. They're an invention of a certain set of historical contingencies. Among them, the just norm that most middle-class kids have a room of their own in which to like tuck multiple friends, you know, for the night, on and on and on. Um, so I grew up with them. I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. I, I had sleepovers all the time. I was a kid who I think very badly needed to see other paradigms of parenting, other ways of having households than the one I was growing up in for a variety of reasons. Uh, and um, it, they were very powerful to my sense of my developing self. I, I can't even imagine having those horizons cut off to me or having only the partial glimpse of friends, you know, in an occasional way, like the, the just the rhythms of a household that are impossible to mimic when someone is sort of performing host or hostess. Um, you know, it just changes when you have someone in your house for 24 or 48 hours. So I, I loved them and needed them as a kid. Um, and secondly, without giving short shrift to the dangers, now possibly implicit in the concept, right? And, you know, but I mean, you're as a parent, you're constantly sort of sniff testing what your kids are doing and striking a balance between, you know, overvigilance and, you know, uh, uh, being... A, a overly lax and you know that sweet spot isn't always easy to locate but it so therefore comes with risks and you got to take those risks as a parent we were the household that hosted sleepovers you know we lived out in the country had a huge basement space that could be dedicated completely to the kids and so my kids you know got a kind of semi-autonomous realm of kid freedom um, and they could just disappear and it required us to trust them, right? I mean, trust but verify, but, you know, but but trust, basically. It gave them this, I think, in some ways superficial but very important sense of freedom, which of course is rooted in safety. And, um, and they got to just kind of organize their own time and their own activities and get up to their own stuff down there and it never got out of hand and it it was just formative to them and it was interesting i think for my kids you know to see how other kids reacted to their household so in addition to going to other sleepovers and seeing different ways of being in the world also but there was just this sense of like oh my parents are this but they're not that my our social class means this but not that or, you know, our sort of subject position in the world, you know, I mean, just kind of things that, that a child's developing consciousness can't assign a name to or, or, or be overly abstract about, but is very concrete and very real. Just that diversity of experience in a way. And let me conclude, Julia, by saying I'm a big advocate of the adult sleepover. 
Miss City Friends coming up and spending the weekend at my house was just effectively like a really fun sleepover. And you get to know someone in a completely different way. And 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 the friendship I think really takes and really bonds. The fact that I'm making that person their freaking coffee in the morning, that we're kind of hanging out in our pajamas for a couple hours, three hours on a Sunday uh morning, the fact that they're Interacting with my kids, you know, a really close friend of ours has become my kids' fant, their fake aunt, you know, and is is tight with them. I mean, my kids got a wide variety of adult. We don't have a we. Neither my wife nor I has a, has a large extended family at all. Like radically not in in both our cases for different reasons, and so my kids got a kind of surrogate extended family because of the grown up sleepover. I like one trade any of this for anything it was so worth whatever risk you know came with it oh, that's so funny i haven't thought about the adult sleepover but that's i want to circle back around to that because we you know now that we're out in la we've we've set up our place with a, a comfortable place to stay for people because we want visitors and we want all of our far flung friends to come and dana has come and it's been fun to have coffee with dana in our pajamas um <laughs> and uh, for all the reasons you describe. And we also have had prior to COVID and actually we're reviving it this year, a weekend where a whole bunch of my husband's college friends gather with all their kids. And it's, you know, back in our 20s and 30s, it was like, stay up till four drinking and, and you know, talking and goofing around. And now it's like, everybody's up at five making scrambled eggs for each other's children. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, a, it's really a fun hang especially at this moment of life where you don't hang out once a week you hang out a couple times a year if you're lucky it's good to get that like deep time in but beyond the adult sleepover piece of it i mean i don't know all of parenthood is risk you could be terrified every minute about i mean parenting is just acclimating yourself to the idea every minute that this like beautiful little creature that you care for with your whole heart could perish somehow or be harmed somehow by anything, which they could at any moment. There could be a meteor strike. There could be a train crash. There could be an earthquake. There could be a whatever, a mass shooting in your kid's school. I mean, the 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 terror of parenting is everywhere. And like adjusting to parenthood is just trying to come up with like a healthy relationship to that terror and figure out what what's the baseline of safety. And then how do you operate with some freedom within that safety? And yeah, give your give your kids the chance to experience mild emotional harm so that they learn how to deal with it, because life is going to expose them to at least mild emotional harm and hopefully not too many earthquakes, you know, like so the the notion of like going over to another house and getting a sense of how do other families work and what are the rules and what do people eat and what, how do they do screen time? And you know, what happens if we just get up to mischief in the room and invent a weird game with the, you know, stuffed animals, like what that seems extremely good and fine and, and developing a sense that there are multiple ways to live is is so important. I do think, I mean, I think this, I feel so grateful for the caregivers in my kid's life beyond me and my husband, because I think you don't want to, you know, you don't want them to imprint only on you. Like there's so many different ways to be. The ways that we particularly are might or might not be the best ways to be in the world for our children, you know? Like they, they seem interested in them, but there's other ways to explore and other paths. So I don't know. I, I I was in favor of us doing this segment because I thought it would be fun to talk about our own relationships to sleepovers, but I, and I, it sounded like a stupid trend and a stupid piece, and yet I surprised myself with my fury at how stupid this trend is. Like, <laughs> fine, worry about, but like, if you're going to worry about a sleepover, why not worry about the daytime play date? Like, they could also be bullied there. I mean, I remember being terrified at Caroline McCluskey's fifth grade birthday party where we slept <laughs> over and we all watched The Watcher in the Woods and I like couldn't handle it. Didn't, t- true to self, hated horror movies then. Possibly that's the like rosebud of my fear of horror movies. Couldn't deal with it. <laughs> like snifflingly went down the stairs from like the cool attic where we hung out at her sleepovers and the, which was like her brother's domain but he was off at college but he like left his reggae tapes around and we all like learned who Peter Tosh was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, 
And I remember like going downstairs and talking to her mom, who was this like really nice lady from New Orleans, who was a real estate agent and just being like, I'm scared of the movie and feeling really embarrassed, but like, whatever, (laughs) that was fine, you know? Like that was a mild trauma of fifth grade and also fine, (laughs) like good. Yeah, I can think of even bigger traumas than that that I experienced at sleepovers, and I'm still glad I did them as a whole, you know? I mean, I remember, like, the humiliation of going to a sleepover when I was sick and sort of making myself go because I wanted to be there and all the girls were there. And then just throwing up on the lawn in the middle of the night and my mom had to come pick me up and feeling so childlike and humiliated that I couldn't stay over. I think that was in seventh grade. And I remember... My daughter also, I remember a sleepover when she was eight that there were some weird girl dynamics, but I'm still glad it happened and they learned to work it out for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think your your point about privilege and time, I mean, I actually had someone ask us before a sleepover for the first time, or maybe it was even just normal play date, whether we keep guns in the house, which is like a more, um, no one else has ever asked it of me and I have never asked it of anybody and California, like New York City, has quite strict gun laws, but it's a more variegated mix of people than the particular precincts of New York that I lived in. And it sort of feels like a more plausible question. And I think the mom felt awkward about asking it, but I was really glad she did if it made her feel more comfortable. And it made me feel like maybe I was a dummy for not asking with, you know, families that you're just getting to know. And you do kind of have to take this leap of trust of like, well, you seem... I, I like the cut of your jib. I feel like I could send my child to your home. And you do kind of never know, you know, what's really going on to, until you get to know people. So it does take, like, time. There should be a term for, there should be, like, the term disposable energy, like disposable income. Like, I just think sometimes in modern life, like, I don't have any extra energy beyond, like, work, feed, parent. You know, like there's not there's not any extra time to be like, how do I feel about this family's vibe? (laughs) And do I feel, you know, do I feel good about it? I feel like I have enough of that, but I could imagine in a different set of economic or other circumstances feeling like I just actually didn't have time to to know. So what feels sort of basic to me, which is like, well, take get a sense of whether you think the parents are people you want to have a sleepover with maybe is actually harder to do for some folks. But the. I don't know. We can come back around to performative parenting on social, perhaps in another segment, because it's truly a whole thing that merits examination. I think, yeah, I think the the thing that gets me about these kind of pieces is not that there aren't cases and circumstances in which there would be alarm, but that there's supposed to be a sort of, you know, wave of alarm that we all feel together. Of course, you should figure out in in, in the individual situation whether a household is safe and asking whether they have guns or any kind of question like that seems perfectly fine. And yeah, it's not a question of of any blanket response being being correct. But yeah, I just don't like those kind of questions being fanned on social media as if every experience of parenting is the same. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Slate Plus members, for listening to this bonus segment of our show and for supporting Slate and its journalism and the Culture Gab Fest. We will see you next week.